Well, I'm glad we can all be together here this morning. Um, today is our last week in the Elephant in the Room series. It has been a bit of a okay adventure, journey, slog, torture. I don't know what word you want to use, uh, but it's been an experience for sure. It's been challenging for many of us. Um, and these sermons on Sunday mornings, as I've said before, they're not really, they weren't really meant to be the be-all, end-all of these big topics. Instead, I just hope that they're the conversation starters. So I hope that you've been continuing to engage in the topics that we've talked about, uh, that you're asking hard questions, um, and that you're using our resource list. Please use that resource list. You can access it, scan the QR codes. They're in the list. You can, there's a little button there to get to the resource list for all these things that go into way deeper detail than, than I ever could on a Sunday morning, Sunday morning set, uh, setting. And I hope that you're also engaging in thoughtful, nuanced, and loving conversation. But most importantly, I pray that through these conversations, we would grow to become more like Jesus in how he loves people. So I'm going to give you my best and most honest attempt at interpretation of God's word for these topics for today. But the main question that I've been addressing throughout this series and again today is not necessarily the right or wrong of each week's topic, but much more so how to be a Christian as you think through these. In these areas of conversation, in these spaces in life, how are we supposed to be Christians? How are we to act Jesusly? In these areas. Today's sermon is different from the other four in that we're not just looking at one topic. These are a bunch of questions that were submitted uh, that we couldn't really take a whole sermon on, but were still really good questions. Uh, so I wanted to address them here. If you've ever listened to a podcast or a YouTuber or a blog or whatever, and they take listener questions, they do like a mailbag type episode, that's, that's going to be kind of the idea today. These four questions aren't necessarily related or go together, uh, but they all do help us, uh, they, they help to contribute to our understanding of the Bible and how we read the Bible. And again, I'm not, uh, just because I'm not spending much time on these topics doesn't mean that they don't deserve just as much conversation as the other topics in this series. So we're still going to have our safe space for conversation after the service um, back behind uh, this wall here. And I hope you brought your stress balls again today one last time. I don't know, maybe you need those stress balls for more than just this series. I don't know how you all are responding to me these days, but uh, maybe those are going to be more applicable for long term. Maybe just have them always available in the back. I don't know. But um, all right. Uh, so let's pray together the prayer that we have been praying throughout this series to kind of set the tone and to help us engage together in gentleness and respect as we are taught in 1 Peter 3.15. So we open our hands in a position of receiving. We close our eyes. <clears throat> Lord, we humble ourselves and submit to you as best we can. Help us to love each other well. Amen. Amen. So here's the first question. Is it possible that there could be more books added to the Bible? How did the Bible become the, uh, another question we got, how did the Bible become the collection of writings that we know today and or why were certain other writings and so-called gospels not included? 
Good questions, right? <laughs> I said, I don't know. So the next question is, <laughs> kidding. So generally, these questions can be handled under the heading of canon, uh, the canon of the Bible. What does the word canon mean? Well, in this context, it doesn't mean the old military weapon that Jack Sparrow shoots from his pirate ship. It's just the authoritative selection of works in a given area, right? So, so there's the biblical canon, the works that have been accepted as the authoritative works. But there's also the Marvel Cinematic Universe canon. <laughs> there's the Star Wars canon, the Harry Potter canon. These canons help us to be able to differentiate between the authoritative story and truths of that universe as opposed to things like fan fictions and theories. So the word canon isn't strictly a religious term, but it helps us to know what works are authoritative and which ones aren't. Now, with the rise of distrust in institutions nowadays, right? The rise of distrust of institutions, and not just the church, but in general. Uh, there are questions that arise about how we know what a given institution says is true. And because of that institutional distrust, sometimes the canon is unfairly put into question, not on the merits of the canon, but simply because it has been claimed as canon by a particular institution. But putting that aside, that issue aside, let's look at this a little bit. We need to ask ourselves this question. What is the purpose of the scriptures? What's the purpose of the scriptures? It's to know God and learn how we can be made right with him. The authoritative works that are in our accepted scripture now give us this. It accomplishes this objective. Now, can other works do that? Yes. But rather than being included in this canon, they should be evaluated by this canon to determine their truth and legitimacy. So looking more specifically at the question about new books being added to the canon, uh, we can see that it can apply to new works that are written or old works that are discovered. All right, so let's look at each of those. So as Christians, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. What does that mean? Well, it kind of depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, but at least at a broad level, it means that God inspired the authors to write what God wanted to be written. Whether he did this directly and had them write word for word exactly what he wanted, which is called the dictation theory, or he simply used and shaped the writers in their styles, gifts, and abilities, and then set them loose with his blessing. Right, or some combination of these two. We're not totally sure, and people hold wide range of opinions about that. But the Bible is inspired in that it is authoritative because it comes from God in one form or another. But do I believe... But I do believe that God inspires authors today as well. I quote C.S. Lewis a lot. I believe his works of fiction are some of the most inspired writings we're ever going to see. <laughs> his other more explicitly theological works are fantastic too, but, but they're not scripture. 
right? And one of the ways that I know that I can say that Lewis was inspired by God is because his works seem to line up with the inspired word of God that we see in Scripture. But we wouldn't add his or other newer works to the canon because the purposes of revealing God to the extent that we need to know and how to be reconciled to him have already been made plain in the canon that we already have. So what about newly discovered ancient writings? Could we discover a new ancient writing that could be accepted as canon? This one's a little trickier. And if I'm being intellectually honest, I'd have to say, yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know what we're going to find in future archaeological digs. You know, I, I personally would love to see the other letters to the Corinthian church that Paul wrote. We have two of at least what we know of to be at least four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And I'd love to see what else he wrote to that church. There's a lot going on there. Uh, but two of them, at least, have been lost to time. But I will say that it is rather unlikely that we find those or other new ancient writings that we haven't seen. A few factors make me say this. Not impossible, but unlikely. A few factors make me say this. First of all, we evaluate newly discovered works uh, by the scripture that we currently have. As I've said before, the current body of canon has been accepted as orthodox, meaning accepted godly truth. Uh, so newly discovered works would have to be evaluated according to what we currently have. Second, while we are still discovering biblical texts, even today, most of what we find have been parts of the Bible that already exist. Just last year, March of 2021, new texts were discovered but they were all from Old Testament prophets that we already have. So they weren't new, exactly. And lastly, and here we're going to move uh, more into the how uh, the canon came into its current form. Uh, the writings that are currently included were decided upon based on early acceptance and use over time. The more a document was used and accepted, the more it was copied and spread around, so there are more copies that could have survived the sands of time, and thus we find more of those texts. The texts that were not deemed acceptable or useful or truthful were not copied or distributed as widely, and thus will probably not be found because of their degradation over time. And this, this is one of the keys uh, to understanding how the canon was decided in the first place. The books and writings that we have were not given their authority because they were included in the canon. Including them in the canon simply recognized the authority that they already had. People take action on something only when a need arises for it. Right, so the fact that an official canon for scripture didn't exist, come to an existence for a few hundred years, doesn't actually impugn its creation. See, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when I say the Gospels, we're talking about the uh, biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they were still written while there were eyewitnesses' accounts to validate those stories, those accounts, the descriptions. But they weren't written right away. 
The disciples themselves, they thought that Jesus was returning imminently. They thought his, the second coming was coming really quick. They, so they didn't feel the need to write all that down. They didn't start writing some of that stuff down right away. But after it became clear that Jesus was not coming back, they started writing some of this down. And then much later, other writings started cropping up that were either completely against the teachings of Jesus or skewed it just enough that it veered into falsehood. And so the young Christian church needed a way to officially recognize which writings were authoritative. And remember, there was no email. There were no phone calls at the time, right? News and writings took time, years to make the rounds, to circulate and to be evaluated and accepted by groups of people. The teachings of Jesus, the teachings of this newly formed church, there was no textbook, no official document to tell what was authoritative or not. The, the Old Testament was pretty much finalized by the time of Jesus. Uh, so a lot of the stuff was evaluated based on the Old Testament writings and based on the teachings of those who were closest to Jesus himself, the disciples. So over time, as the writings of the Gospels happened, as the letters of Paul and Peter and others were circulated, the ones that were deemed truthful by those who had walked with Jesus himself were accepted and used. Whereas the stuff that didn't jive with those who had spent the most time with Jesus faded away. It wasn't some grand conspiracy by the church to suppress certain books because they were damaging to the church or its power. The decisions were simply made to recognize, hey, these are the writings that the disciples themselves and the early church have been using. So let's recognize these. And anything else that doesn't work with those, we'll leave out. It's not that there aren't histor interesting historical insights that we can glean from these other writings that weren't included, or even that there isn't some truth to be found in them. But they weren't used or recognized by the early church. So when, much later, other writings were circulated, they could be evaluated according to the accepted authoritative body of Scripture. So no, I don't think new books will be added to Scripture. It could be possible but they would have some really high hurdles to clear to make that happen. <laughs> Pray. Lord, we humble ourselves and submit to you as best we can. Help us to love each other well. Amen. <clears throat> so that brings me to my second question. I just talked about how uh, it was the works of the early apostles, those who had Spent So I say apostles and disciples. If you don't know the difference, disciple is a student, right? So you had the 12 disciples. And there were lots of other disciples of Jesus, but there was mainly the 12. And so they were learning and being discipled, taught. They were students of Jesus. Apostle means sent, a sent one. And so the disciples and the apostles are the same people. And they, they're, they're, their title kind of changed based on their function, right? Before they were the students. And once Jesus uh, kind of commissioned them and said, go and make disciples, they became the apostles, the sent ones. So just a little clarification there. Um, so I just talked about how it was the works of these early apostles, those who had actually spent time with Jesus, who were, that were given the priority, the authority. So what about Paul? Where does his authority come from? He wasn't a disciple. 
In fact, during the time of Jesus himself, he would have been included in the number of Pharisees that Jesus would have been ripping apart because of their hypocrisy. And yet, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. How did he get in there? Plus, he's the guy who wrote some of the things that we might consider more controversial these days. Can we really rely on him? Can't we just rely on the teachings of the actual disciples and ignore Paul's crazy stuff? Well, first of all, Paul is really heady. Brilliant guy. So be careful when calling his work crazy stuff. Um, Even Peter calls Paul's writings hard to understand. (laughs) So take the time to understand Paul's context in his writings and all of that before passing judgment. I'll get to that a little bit more in a minute here. But what about his authority? right? Well, Paul's commissioning from God came from Jesus himself in the form of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul was on his way to that town to persecute more followers of the way. And that's what Christians were called at the time, followers of the way. Uh, And Jesus shows up in thunder and blinding light and he goes, dude! He said, dude. (laughs) I said, dude, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me when you persecute my people? I'm giving you a mission, and you're mine now. Oh, and if this encounter wasn't scary enough, I'm also going to make you blind for a little while. (laughs) So Paul goes to convalesce for a while from his blindness, and a follower of Jesus named Ananias is told by God himself to go and heal him from his blindness. So Ananias says, no way. No, I'm not going to heal that guy. He kills people like me. That's what he was on his way to do. I'm not going near that guy. I'm not touching him. I'm not giving him any reason to put me in prison. But God then tells Ananias that Paul is his chosen instrument to bring his gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the Gentiles, or those who are outside of the Jewish faith. So all of this is attested to in the writings from Luke, who researched it and verified it. Paul then spent time with the apostles themselves, learning from them and growing his his ministry. And his ministry was attested to by God and the apostles over time. Peter, who, remember, was with Jesus for more than three years and was one of his closest friends, says in 2 Peter 3, says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. The wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Peter puts Paul's writings in with other scriptures. And he says, and he, and, and says he speaks with the wisdom that God gave him. So Peter himself considered Paul's words authoritative, even though ignorant and unstable people distort his writings sometimes. So Paul's authority comes from his personal encounter with Jesus himself. 
his commissioning to the mission by God himself, and his verification and validation of his work and ministry by the apostles themselves. So we can't just dismiss his words. We have to take them into consideration. Some of his writings take more work to understand rightly. Let's be honest. But we must extend that effort, and we will see that he doesn't contradict the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't complicate things. In fact, he harmonizes quite well. Lord, we humble ourselves and submit to you as best we can. Help us to love each other well. Amen. The third question that we'll look at today is one I've heard a lot, and it's this. How come God seems so angry in the Old Testament and loving in the New Testament? You knew where I was going. <laughs> What's up with that? Who, which one is the real God? And is the God of the Old Testament also loving? And is the God of the New Testament also angry? Yes. Go and do likewise, the end. <laughs> Let me explain. First, let's, let's look at anger itself, okay? Anger is just an emotion. Some people think it's heresy to speak of God as an emotional being, but our emotions are a part of what it means to be made in his image. Emotions aren't the problem. It's what we do with those emotions that's important. Humans can oftentimes let emotions drive the bus. That doesn't happen with God. We have a saying in recovery, emotions are like your kids in the car. You shouldn't let them drive, but don't throw them in a trunk either. <laughs> so you gotta recognize your emotions. They're real, they're even good, but don't let them drive, right? God didn't do that. God doesn't let his emotions drive. Anger is merely uh, a warning light on the dashboard that something's going on under the hood maybe for us. It's possible to be angry and not sin. And what we see with God's anger is that it takes him a crazy long time to get angry. And even when he does get angry, it's never off the hook. Right? It's never out of control like someone's is sometimes. Sometimes... His judgments against the Israelites when we're reading the Old Testament and other people there, it can just seem like, like just too much. But he always gives warnings ahead of time. He, he sends prophets with warnings to turn to him. He reminds them of their promise to him. And if they turn back, we see him honor that and turn his hand away from them. He does that so often that Jonah, when he went to talk to Nineveh, he didn't want to do that originally because he knew that if they turned from their sins, God was going to relent and save them. And he didn't want him to do that. It's like, God, come on, I know. If they repent, you're going to forgive them. He has that track record with Jonah. So Jonah was really ticked off when they actually did. He had some anger issues. And we read in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And we read that today and we think, oh, he means spiritual death. 
but he means all of the death, right? The physical and spiritual. That's why to save us, he had to die a physical and spiritual death on the cross. We live under the law of grace on this side of the cross. So when we see the actual penalty of actual death being visited on people in the Old Testament, it seems horrifying. It offends our Western sensibilities. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that the question of violence and death in the Old Testament is one of the tougher questions about God. But this is the result of our sin. There is no sin that isn't deserving of death. Because even the so-called small sins, right, those are turning from God. Turning from God. And because God is life, when we turn from God, when we turn from life, we turn to not life, to death. It's just, it's the natural result of our sin. But God is patient. I, I had a friend uh, back in Manhattan where I used to work, uh, and she told me that when she reads the Old Testament, all she saw was an angry old man dishing out death and judgment. And I said, okay, I can see that. I, I see where you're getting that. But I told her, you know, I, when I read it, I, I see a God who gives second and third and fourth on down the line chances. He goes seemingly forever before he doles out judgment. He gives warnings, second chances. He has conversations with people about his intentions. When he creates his covenant with the Israelites, he tells them exactly what he will do if they disobey and break the covenant. And he does no more and no less than what was agreed upon. It sounds horrible, but the penalty of death is the same today. But today, that death was given to Jesus to die for us. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus dies again every time we sin. Otherwise, his declaration of from the cross of it is finished doesn't work. But his death is ours for eternity. By his wounds, we are healed, says in Isaiah 53. By his wounds, by the stripes on his back from the whips, by the, by the holes in his head from the thorns, by the holes in his arms and legs from the nails, by his death, we are spared. Death is still the penalty for our sin, but we don't have to experience it any longer. Physical death is still, still happens, right? But we are spared God's wrath because he poured it out on Jesus himself. And listen to this section in the Old Testament about God's anger. I love this. This is from Exodus chapter 20 in the section on the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Man, the third and fourth generation. That doesn't sound very good. Right? That's harsh. Verse 6. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, this is important here. The actual numbers here aren't what are emphasized. It's a particular concept. It's saying God gets angry and punishes accordingly. His wrath and anger are real. But look at his love. There's no comparison. None. If pouring out his wrath to the third and fourth generation doesn't seem fair, then pouring out his love to a thousand generations is ridiculous. And again, the numbers aren't the key here. They're not specific and exact numbers. They're representative. They're symbolic of the truth that is being communicated. For this God, this angry God of the Old Testament, there is no comparison between his anger and his love. And remember, this truth is written in the Old Testament. This is the same God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Sin is still a major problem. But his love is always what governs God. His wrath is never out of control or flavored by personal vengeance like ours is. God is always in control of himself and is fully just and fully merciful. Now, again, I have to say that this doesn't necessarily mean that these passages in the Old Testament where God's judgment comes are easy to read. Right? They're still really difficult. But keep in mind this one last key concept here for this, okay? Jesus... Who? Jesus is our key to understanding all of Scripture. We interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We do this because of the doctrine of progressive revelation. And what this means is that as Scripture progresses, as our Scriptures progress, more and more of the character and will of God is revealed. It reaches its peak in the incarnated person of Jesus. So while parts of God's will and character are revealed in the Old Testament, more and more is revealed in the New Testament. And because God is an integrated whole, because he is the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we must read the Old Testament in light of what we know of God, in light of what we know is true about God from the New Testament. So this is the same God. And when in doubt, read through the lens of Jesus. Always remember Jesus when you're reading the Old Testament. You'll find him all over the place. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves and submit to you as best we can. Help us to love each other well. Amen. One more question before we leave today. This one deals with the different translations of the Bible. Right? A few concepts to consider here as you try to find the translation that 
you want to use at any given time. First of all, why are there so stinking many translations of the Bible? Man, there's a lot to wade through there. Well, given the age of these documents, uh, meaning the documents of the Bible, uh, and the languages that they were written in, which are no longer used, the work of translation is really hard. It's really difficult. You're not just translating language, you're translating cultures, you're trans translating idioms, you're like all this stuff. So as we gain more knowledge, as we learn more, we can get more accurate translations. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the newest translations and versions are always better. It doesn't always mean that, but it can help. And different translations will emphasize different things. Here's a fun little homework assignment for you. When you get home, if you have a hard copy of the Bible and are not just using an app on your phone, go home and take some time to read the fine print at the beginning of your Bible. I don't know if you've any of you have read the really little words at the beginning, the fine print at the beginning. Oftentimes, oftentimes, there will be a note from the translation committee there that tells you about their philosophy of translation. Their guiding principles, all that kind of thing. You can also go, if you don't find it there, you can also go to that translation's website. And you can find some of that information there as well. A quick Google search will take you to any of them. And compare these guiding principles to the principles of translation from other versions. And you can see why certain passages are translated a little differently at times. One guiding principle that you'll see sometimes is the word-for-word -word strategy of translation versus the thought-for-thought -thought strategy. And what this means is, do you translate each word as it's written, or do you translate the concept that it's communicating? There are pluses and minuses to each approach. A quick example, the ESV, English Standard Version. Uh, that's a little more word-for-word -word in its philosophy. You'll get a translation that's closer to the actual words used in the ancient language. But the NIV, the New International Version, is more middle of the road. It's more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation. It combined literal and conceptual translations. So, when the ESV says mankind or brothers, that's probably closer to the actual words that were used originally. But the NIV will say humankind or brothers and sisters because that's the original idea that was being communicated. If it was just speaking to men, the NIV used only that language. But if it was referring to all people, the NIV reflected that in its translation. Both translations are technically correct, but they have different guiding philosophy. With strict word-for-word -word Bibles, it can be hard to follow what it's saying sometimes. Sometimes. But with paraphrases, on the other end of the spectrum, you can miss the details of the writing. I said a spectrum. Here's one uh, up here of Bible translations. You can see the NIV, which I've mentioned, which is my, my preferred, personally preferred version, is somewhere in the middle. It mixes word-for-word -word and thought-for-thought. Um, other versions, like the NKJV, New King James Version, and the ESV, and the NASB, all these acronyms, are more on the word-for-word -word side. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, word-for-word -word side, over here. And things like the message 
are more on the paraphrase side. The word for word and the more middle of the spectrum versions, those are good for in-depth Bible study. Okay, you can do some good work understanding context and meaning and original uh, wording with these Bibles. The paraphrase versions, particularly the message, can really help you understand the big ideas and narratives of Scripture in very understandable words that fit well in our context, our current context. Another factor in thinking about translations is how many people worked on it, right? Uh, meaning, when in doubt, when in doubt, always prefer versions that have been done by committees. Right, now, this isn't a foolproof criteria, but it can be really helpful because the, this brings a diversity of scholarship and expertise to the translation process and results in better and more responsible translations. An exception to this uh, might be the message translation. I've mentioned that a few times already. This was done by one guy, Eugene Peterson, uh, and he didn't even want to do it in the first place. <laughs> he was a pastor, and he would do that for his congregation. He would write out passages. He was fluent in the ancient language, as, as fluent as one could be, um, and would just write out modern ways of, of saying these scriptures for his congregation. Somebody approached him about doing that for the whole Bible, and he said, no. Um, they warmed down eventually, and so he did it. And uh, it's been around for a little while now, probably 20 years or so. Um, and given its intention as a paraphrase Bible, it's been widely accepted, and its scholarship and translation have been considered very good. So that version can really help you get out of some of the deep weeds and help you to understand some of the big concepts. Uh, but you should be careful with versions done by one person in general. Uh, the Passion Translation, for instance, that's been getting a lot of press lately, uh, but it has not really been passing muster with biblical scholars. A uh, version done by one guy, uh, and there are some, some agendas that come through that interfere with some responsible translations. So please be careful with that version. I don't officially endorse it. <laughs> So don't use the message for your in-depth Bible study, but do use it. Right? It's helpful to read different versions because you can get a sense for the fuller uh, pictures of some various passages. Sometimes you'll hear me do that on a Sunday uh, where I say something like, you know, hey, I prefer, I prefer the NIV, but I actually I think other versions interpret this section a little closer, a little better. Maybe you've heard me say that a couple of times. Um, another possibility for growing your understanding of Scripture is if you can do this, read in other languages and translations from other contexts instead of white European or white American. Sometimes another context can give you a fuller perspective, okay? So when you, when you translate, when, when you're doing the work of translation, you try to find the best translation, the best interpretation of a particular word, the original meaning of a particular word. And so when you find that original meaning, that should be true no matter what context you're working in because that's the original meaning of the original writers. But sometimes it's not so clear cut. Here's an example. The Greek word for righteousness, and let's see if I can say this right, is dikaiosune. But that word is also the word for justice. 
justice and righteousness. Same word in the Greek. So in our English-speaking Western world, which emphasizes our individual and personal aspects of our faith, you get the word righteousness in your Bible a lot more. But in contexts where people come from a more communal or collective mindset rather than the individual, which was more the context of the original writings, by the way, where, where in contexts where injustice and oppression are more rampant, or where you're simply a minority, you'll get the word justice in your Bible a lot more frequently. They're both correct, but reading outside of your context can help you understand the full meaning of dikeasune, the individual and collective implications. So use whatever version you want, but do the research first. Read the translation philosophies, right? Look for versions that have used committees. Look at your intention for your time in the Word that day. All of these can help you in determining which version you'll want to use. If you're looking for personal recommendations, I personally prefer the NIV, New International Version, but the ESV, English Standard Version, is also good, along with the message. There are plenty of other good ones, too. But those are just the ones I'll mention today. So, okay, whew. Bit of a longer one today. Thanks for sticking with me. I hope this has been helpful and informative for you. I really enjoyed researching uh, this one. Again, after the service, if you have more questions, you have more concerns, whatever, please join us in the safe space for conversation in the back there. Um, and I look forward to that conversation. So let's go to God in prayer together from the message. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. From the NIV Spanish. Padre nuestro que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. Venga tu reino, hágase tu voluntad, en la tierra como en el cielo. Danos hoy nuestro pan cotidiano. Perdónanos nuestros deudas, como también nosotros hemos perdonado a nuestros deudores. Y no nos dejes caer en tentación, sino libranos. Del maligno. And from the NIV, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. <clears throat>